In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we talk about how to navigate life in the light of faith. We sometimes put complicated issues on the table and look at them through the lens of faith and talk about how to use the eternal truths revealed to us by God to walk the steps of our lives in this sometimes valley of tears and how to figure out what the right thing is to do in our time. Sometimes we talk about, in a bigger sense, uh, different resources and books and ideas overall that help orient us in the time, the moment in history in which we live. Today on our show, we have a special guest, Jamie Stewart Wolf, who is an editor of a very remarkable book that was recently discovered in a drawer um, from Pope St. John Paul II. Um, something, a book that was written back in 1965, they believe, uh, about the time that the Vatican II was coming to a close and Poland had been Christian for 1,000, the observance of 1,000 years of Christianity in Poland. It's a remarkable little book. It's a series of reflections or catechesis, a series of teachings that then Archbishop Carol Votiwa of Krakow, did I say that right? I think you got it, yeah. <laughs> yes, Votiwa. Um, he wrote it in the years just after Vatican II, and it's a reflection. All of, the, all of the essays come from Acts 17. Acts 17 is when another Paul, when um, St. Paul, was speaking to the scholars and the elites um, the people of Athens, uh, giving them a sermon and talking to them about the unknown God. And there are very important ties to the world we live in today where we're trying to navigate faith and, and reason and bring those two things together, just like Athens and Jerusalem were brought together. Thank you so much, Jamie, for being here on the show with us today and for telling us not only about the history of how this book came to be, but also um, your involvement with it and, and what it was like editing a saint uh, whose voice you, you were only hearing through the, the writing that he left to us. Well, thanks for having me, and I, I appreciate your interest in... Uh, you know, what what's actually kind of a great editorial story, right? Because yes. um, you don't often get a new work from someone who is deceased. You don't often get a new work from a saint uh, or a new work for someone who's very popular. But, you, you know, this is he hit it out of the park with this with this book, uh, a very popular author, a very holy author. 
and uh, deceased. And so we we have this work for the first time, even though it was written probably at the close of 1965 or sometime during 1966, as you said. Um, it's not exactly certain when it was written. Uh, the forensics seem to uh, indicate that it was probably written in Rome, uh, not in Poland. Um, the watermark on the paper, he wrote it on by hand and things indicate that, which is sort of interesting too. Uh, but it's a, it's a kind of a mysterious uh, resurgence, you know, a recovery of a work that had been lost um, for 50 years. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of how it was found and, and how it wound up on your desk or in your inbox <laughs> or however it was you received it? Because it's really, really neat. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was a fun it was a fun story. So in the days when we could travel to conferences and things, um, you know, I do that to uh, discover new authors or to find out what the pulse is kind of going on in the church in terms of what are people interested in, what are their needs, uh, what are they looking for in terms of books, and um, so. L.A. Religious Education Congress is something I, I have gone to a few times in that capacity, you know, just sort of looking uh, to get a feel and to listen to good speakers and, and uh, you know, and do that. So um, the uh, Vatican Publishing House almost always sends a representative there, and I usually, just out of respect, you know, because it's the Vatican Publishing House, um, you know, uh, schedule an appointment with that person and just kind of look at what they're doing and what listen to what they're publishing and see if there's anything that might meet the needs of North American readers, Catholic readers. And to be honest, there isn't a whole lot usually that does because we have different needs, right? And we're, we, we, we have different uh, perspectives. And some of that, some of what you'll get out of the Vatican Publishing House isn't necessarily a good match for the uh, readers that, that we reach. Sure. Um, so I was sitting there with uh, with Fred Julio, who's a lovely man, um, who is uh, the head of the, the Vatican Publishing House, and we we're going back and forth talking about projects we're working on. And he's paging through this little catalog and uh, printout PDF, and 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 he comes across this one page and says, "Oh, and we also have this, and this was a new." undiscovered, previously unpublished, never published in English work of John Paul and, and, right, English rights were available. I don't even know how that happens. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a graced moment and it, it was definitely one of those situations. Yeah, it's definitely one of those situations when you are in the right place at the right time and, uh, and you see something that you know that this is probably the most important project I'll ever work on. Wow. So, wow. um, yeah. So, you know, so I, I immediately emailed our publisher and said, um, there's actually this like lost work of John Paul and, um, I'm going to try to do that. And he's like, okay, we'll get that. You know, if we go through the normal process, the acquisitions process can take a while mm -hmm. because the publishing world does run on relatively long deadlines and time <laughs> periods and calendars. And so, uh, I knew that I would not be the only person interested in this work for sure. Right. Um, and uh, definitely would have to be first uh, in order to to uh, secure it for Ave Maria Press. Mm -hmm. So we, um, I, I requested the manuscript from uh, the other person that I've known for a while or I've worked with via email, right, uh, with the Vatican Publishing House. And she sent me overnight in the middle of the night um, 
an email with PDFs of the Polish version and then also their version that was in progress in Italian. So I don't read Italian or Polish, really. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's this thing called Google Translate, and um, you can use it at least to get an idea of what sure. things are saying. I did, I did study a little bit of Slavic languages, so I had a little bit of an idea. And, you know, French and Latin kind of combine into Italian, and that's all, you know, you can pick up some things. But... Um, I woke up in the middle of the night in Anaheim, California, and for, for some reason, and I never do this, ever, um, I crossed my own boundaries and checked my email. Now, I never do that at 3 o'clock in the morning, but I did then. And there, this email was the texts, uh, you know, the versions of, the, of this book in those languages. And when I opened up the Polish document, they had in there, because, of course, it was written originally in handwritten in Polish, they had photographic images of those pages. Wow. And I was just stopped dead in my tracks, right? You know, it was three o'clock in the morning and it was Anaheim, California. And that didn't matter that it was mm. of, uh, you know, in March or February of 2019. Um, it was a real personal encounter with St. John Paul in that moment. You, you just, I just held my hand over the screen of my phone uh, with those handwritten pages and, and just really felt him there. And, uh, and, you know, and then quickly trying to translate some things and get it to our team as soon as possible and, and uh, you know, and reach an agreement for publication in English, which we uh, released just last March, 2020. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things. <laughs> yeah, it was meant to happen. I mean, yeah, I, I imagine you look back on that every day and wonder just how <laughs> how uh, how did that come to be? I, right. I yeah. This is such a you know I, I love a lot of a lot of people love um, John Paul II's writings the way he's so clear. Um, with his encounter between faith and reason and, and his support mm -hmm. of the, the modern sciences. Um, and I, th there are, I, I know there's a introduction. There's the forward, a forward and yeah, an introduction. Forward and an introduction. Yes. The forward by George Weigel, an introduction by Scott Hahn. And I loved yes. how George Weigel pointed out the high points of the book. And I, and I was amazed looking through it that in this little set of sermons from Acts 17, um, George Weigel was pointing out there are, you, you see highlights of everything that Pope St. John Paul II went on to, to speak about and write about yeah. in his lifetime. Um, the, the encounter between Athens, Athens and Jerusalem, the importance of yes. understanding the human person, body and soul, and right. the dignity of free will and intellect. Um, Freedom and responsibility. Yes. You know, yes. Um, the importance of the human person. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see this about John Paul II, that he's almost, he's almost always obsessed with the big questions. No matter what particular endeavor he's in, he's, he's re reminding us that we have to ask as human beings, who am I? Well, where am I going? What am I made for? What is freedom? What is love? And it's so, it was so, I shared the same experience with you looking at uh, George's themes that are brought out in this book and then seeing in just these short little treatises, these short little uh, sermons or whatever they are, 
those themes are there. They're in small, undeveloped forms, but that's what John Paul II would spend his life and his pontificate bringing to yes. the world. And we see he's carrying it with us, with him all this time. Um, right. It's fascinating. It's years. You know, it was a dozen years before he would stand on the balcony of St. Peter's and, you know, and be and having been elected Holy Father um, when he wrote this. And yet you see in it, it's really like, it reads like a preamble to his pontificate. That's, you yeah. see in it, you know, the seeds to so many documents, so many uh, audiences, so many uh, the th the great themes of his ministry and his work. Um, and it's beautiful to see them kind of in infancy, right? Mm -hmm. They're not fully developed, but they're all there. Um, and his his way of expressing them here um, very briefly, um, very accessibly. You know, it's not one of these really uh, gigantic treatises that he is also well known for that they're sometimes rather daunting. These yeah. seem to have been intended for an audience that would hear them uh, over, a, over a period of time, although we don't really know if they were ever delivered, if they were ever given, or who heard them if they were. Um, but we do know that in these short pieces, right, he lays out um, kind of a map uh, and a compass for how he really uh, saw the church encountering the modern world. I think something interesting about it um, is, Jamie, is that you got to see the full pages of his handwritten yeah. copies of this, right? What goes into, and Stacy, you know this as an author, there are times when uh, it's good to be typing and letting the words fly out on a keyboard, but the hard work of writing, I, I find when I was writing my dissertation and other books that I've done, if you can take a piece of paper and scratch out the big ideas you want to get across with your hand on a paper. It's a different process, it's more meditative to see that, that he did this with his hand, just like when you look at the theology of the body and you see his, his, the original manuscript of his hands. There's just something meditative about that and contemplative about his process to writing that I think is maybe important for future authors and you know to remember that like, hey, handwriting stuff can be a way in which you slowly filter out what's Yes. really the most important thing yeah you know what's, what's really and, yeah and what's really interesting is you know you make editorial choices when you when you produce a, a project like this a book like this and um, <clears throat> what we did was we chose to italicize those words that the author in his handwritten copy had underlined mm -hmm. so he had underlined emphasis and we, we chose to italicize those and then we also chose to preserve the little devotional um, epigraphs that he mm -hmm. put at the top of each page. And we, we kind of gather those at the, at the head of each chapter, at the head of each teaching, and let people know what, the, what those are. And they're, they're, they're flowing from the tradition of the church, you know, the gospel sequence for Easter Sunday, the uh, gospel sequence for Pentecost Sunday, um, and other devotional things. Um, that he just writes at the top of each page, you know, the, the left or the right top of each page, and then moves on. And and they're not necessarily connected to the words on the page, mm -hmm. but they're very connected to the process of writing and the yeah. process of praying that you see yeah. um, throughout the work. That's beautiful. Yeah. We're looking through some of the chapters. Um, 
you know, the, we already said the, the one on uh, the human being and freedom, and he talks yes. about the one who is. I'm always struck about uh, speaking of the unknown God that, mm -hmm. that he's, I mean, you can just imagine St. Paul standing at the Arapagus speaking to the elites of Athens, kind of like you would almost picture a Catholic standing up at a university speaking to atheist scientists of our day. Right. And, and you're telling them like he does, like, like St. Paul does in Acts 17, you're, you're telling them about the unknown God, this, this, this thing you're striving for, that you're grappling for, that you're yearning for in all of your study of philosophy and the sciences, that God revealed himself to us. He made himself right. known. And it's just so beautiful how it's not just, oh, hey, this is God. It's that when you understand that as a person, you start to understand the meaning and purpose of your own life, of, yeah. of having free will and of love. Right. And it's just, I think it's really good that after it's all said and done, we are given this gift of this little book with these little concepts so clarified in their brevity, as George Weigel said, um, mm -hmm. for anyone who's new to new to Pope St. John Paul II. I think this right. is a good place to start. It, it actually is. And the funny thing is, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that, you know, this wasn't somehow kept in a drawer for 50 years in order for it to be released now in our times, right? You know, you, you there, there may well be some divine purpose there. Yeah. Uh, because as we are now withdrawn from the world, uh, we have a chance to reflect on how is it that we will re-enter it? Mm -hmm. And how is it that we will really engage our world, our culture, uh, with the faith? And how do we live our faith and proclaim it in the world, not as we wish it were, uh, not as it used to be, uh, but as it is? And how we can reach out to those points of, um, you know, those points of connection with people who don't necessarily believe, knowing that when St. Paul preached that homily on the, on the Areopagus, you know, to the elite, cultural elite of Athens, the, the cultural center of the European Mediterranean world, um, he did so and was largely rejected. And yet mm -hmm. those seeds were planted in such a way that in not very long, the entire Mediterranean world had encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ and largely accepted it. And that gospel had begun to transform that world into, uh, you know, into some of the things that we re recognize now as the hallmarks of, of European civilization, uh, some of the really beautiful things about human rights, about human dignity, about equality, about all of those things that we value uh, in society today, even now. So it's... It's a beautiful thing to know that we can we can engage our world in the same way St. Paul did mm -hmm. and in the same way John Paul did. Yes. Yeah. We can we can we can come at, come into it warmly and uh, not you know necessarily wagging the finger too much right. but uh, but finding those points of connection, finding those unknown gods, those altars are everywhere. Uh, scattered in the world, you know, and people do kind of worship at these altars of the unknown God. They just don't know who, who that God is, and we can yeah. tell them. I was struck by the way, you know, as you said, the forensics indicates that this is written in maybe 65, 66, 
Uh, very, very close to the close of the Second Vatican Council, which was in 1965 that the, the last session ended. John Paul was already at that time beginning to plumb the depths of the documents of Vatican II um, as a way of seeing how evangelization could work in the world, what the Church's purpose would be going forward. To see him already quoting uh, these documents so easily, which wouldn't have been the easiest thing to even acquire mm -hmm. in 1965, I mean, you'd have to really... Really, really want to have those on hand. Uh, you know, you well, can just get them in any bookstore. Father, right? Yeah, right. No, of course. He was, there it, he was. And, it, <laughs> and he had a lot to do with writing some yeah. of those documents as well. And it made so, such a tremendous impact it, on him that it, it's all throughout this book is, look what the council said, and how can that help us understand yeah. uh, not just the historical St. Paul, but what, what carries forward and what the church still has to do. It, it was really fascinating to me. Yeah, it really is, because uh, there are a lot of people, I think, today who love John Paul and don't necessarily love Vatican II, right? Yeah. And then, of course, there are a lot of people who love Vatican II and don't necessarily love John Paul. Um, but here you see the synergy, you know, you see that synergy between um, this man, you know, this archbishop, Carl Watiwa, uh, you, you know, you, that's that's what you see. And and the Vatican Council and the tradition of the church and the missionary spirit of St. Paul, you see that all converge. And it's uh, a powerful moment. I think John Paul experienced the Second Vatican Council is a very powerful moment uh, for the church, for the church's mission in evangelization. And he wanted to make that the centerpiece of everything. And that's what this book really is all about. And he examines, you know, the things, the points of contention, the points of disagreement, where we may lose people or where we may kind of dismiss people uh, as we go forth and, and try to engage the world. Yeah. And he looks at it through that lens of the Areopagus, which seemed to be something that loomed very large in his thinking throughout his life. Yeah. He kept returning to that image. Uh, and one of his final trips, uh, final journeys to the Holy Land, he also uh, journeyed to the Areopagus once again, even though frail in health, it was important for him to be there at that moment. I like that he says in the, uh, the third chapter here, the, truth, the human being and the truth, uh, there's a line where he says, the pedagogical method of the apostle, his ability to root the evangelic, evangelical charisma in the culture of the place, should be admired, right? That that reminder right. that an effective evangelization, even if it fails initially, is mm -hmm. to start from within the common experience of the people that you're reaching out to. And this, this is really um, what we're trying to do at the St. Philip yes. Institute, is find where people are as a way to connect them to where they need to be or where they should be going or where they're called to. But you don't do that very effectively if you start from where they need to be and, and tell them, right. hey, come here, you know, so I, I love John Paul II saying that this is a methodology that needs to be admired. And, of course, you see that is what he did in his own pontificate, you know. Oh, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Everything from, you know, from the great encyclicals to, uh, you know, to kissing the dirt everywhere he traveled, you know. <laughs> he was, uh, you know, and when he was unable to bend, then he, would, he couldn't kiss the ground. And it would raise a plate of, you know, of, of earth from the country and he would kiss that, you know. It, was, it became a hallmark of his travels, um, you know, 129 countries, wow. right? 129 countries. Yeah, so uh, very well-traveled pope. Uh, I'm not sure anyone's going to get off the hook so easily. I mean, maybe a pandemic will uh, will enable you to stay at the Vatican, but not much else. 
yeah. after him. But yes, that's that's the whole thing. It's to engage where someone is, not where you wish they were. And and also to, to grow in your own appreciation, in our own appreciation for um, culture, right? And what we build together as culture. And it may not all be Christian, and it may need to be purified by the gospel, of course. But it's there are still valid things that can be purified by the gospel and that are still consistent with Christian values and, and the way of life that Jesus taught us so that we can engage the current culture. And uh, we don't want to write off anyone or anything because, you know, if Paul had written off uh, Greece, and, uh, where would we be? I mean, granted, we don't have a letter to the Athenians. But we have a letter to a whole lot of other places in Greece, and uh, yeah. you know it became a stronghold of the faith in the Roman Empire at the time. Well, and this is a theme that John Paul II goes to so strongly in Fides et Ratio, the way that the Church has to sift through the ages of history and, and the different systems of thought, philosophical and, and other sorts of thought, to find those which are compatible with the gospel and to mine them and to, to make use of them. This is what Leo XIII was saying in Attorney Patris, you know. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, in his own day, was looked at suspiciously for taking kindly to Aristotle, you know, and that's right. and a large, a lot, I mean, a lot of ways you see this is what St. Paul's trying to do, is take something that's good, that's usable in the culture, and build from it. That's what that's what Aquinas did, that's what Leo Thirteenth said to do in Attorney Patris, and that's exactly what John Paul II traces in, in Fides et Ratio. You get a good history of how the church has right. used philosophy, um, but not just philosophy. Of course, John Paul II is always looking for culture, for beauty, for other things. Mm -hmm. um, and to see that in 1965 is amazing that that idea was already there for him. Yeah. It, it really is. It really is. And it's amazing to think about how we can build on that today. I mean, in, in evangelizing and catechizing, we're always challenging young people especially, but anyone, to, to think about how to progress forward. Because this idea, and, and he mentions it in the book, we're not, time is not circular. Christianity never understood time as, you know, the cosmos as being this eternally cycling being. We understand right. the universe as being created by God with a beginning and an end. And all of us living our lives in this trajectory have a purpose. We have something to contribute to the progress of humanity towards this this end this this end of time when Christ comes again and that you know that a lot of people don't hear that today that's why i, I think right. his teaching needs to be brought anew to the to the kids of today my own teenage children tell me that they 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 sometimes don't understand how some of their friends don't think in terms of purpose and meaning and where they're going mm -hmm. with their life and what's their vocation. They, and, and I've had to look at them with my jaw almost dropped and say, that's because you're Christian and you have always thought about what did God make you to do. You, you've had that dignity right. explained to you since the very beginning of your life. But people, kids who don't have that, they really don't think about um, anything besides, you know, what comes tomorrow. And that these teachings are important for that reason. Teachings for an unbelieving world. The reason to believe is for is for your to understand yourself better. Yeah. 
Right. That's one thing that he quotes so frequently in this uh, in this work, but also probably he had something to do with writing it, right? So the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, mm-hmm. you have, um, you know, number, paragraph 22, you want to mm-hmm. be like, just go find that and read it, right? It's that Christ reveals man to man himself. And we only understand who we are in the light of Christ. He shows us who we are, and he shows us who God is, um, you know, being fully human, being fully divine. He, he is the revelation of both humanity and divinity. And it's, um, it's very interesting, as, as uh, the Archbishop, you know, of Krakow unpacks why uh, Paul's message didn't do very well in Athens. He looks at it and he says, you know, up to a point, they're all listening. They're very open to this thought about God and 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 uh, you know, the Creator of all things and and the one who's powerful and all knowing and the one who will judge uh, humanity at the end of that. That was all fine. But once we got to Christ and the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, once we got to the Paschal mystery. We lost the Areopagan, the, the Areopagus, right? We lost the Athenian elite, not so much because of theology, but because of anthropology. Right. It wasn't so much what Paul said about God that was difficult for them to swallow. It was what he had to say about the human person. And that was that whole Judeo-Christian biblical understanding of the human person and of history, right? You know, we're not trapped in bodies, we're embodied spirits, we're, um, you know, and all of that. That's a very different way of looking at things than the Greeks of that time. And yet, Paul continues to draw on, and it's so interesting to me that we have this in our liturgy repeated throughout the year, this whole quote from this um, from this pagan poet, this pagan Greek poet. You know, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. We attribute that to St. Paul, but he borrowed it. You know, <laughs> he, he didn't exactly cite it, no footnote there, but he, there he was tapping into, uh, tapping into what the Greeks knew and their own poets and their own stories, their own understanding of who they were in light of this unknown God. And and actually, I, I'm so grateful to, to Dr. Scott Hahn for for uh, really illuminating the history that's connected with that uh, with that poet Epimenides um, in the introduction here, because it really unpacks what was going on, how the Greeks of that time in that place heard Paul's words and understood them. Very interesting. It's the only sermon we have in Scripture of Paul uh, speaking to Gentiles. It's the only one. Um, you know, he always went to the synagogues first. And we have some of that, but this is the only recorded sermon to to uh, you know non-Jewish people, and uh, there's a lot to learn here. I think it's fascinating to to think about the way in which Paul or John Paul II or any of us, right, are are implicitly called to learn the culture. If you're going to do this method, you have to know something about what's going on, right? We can't shut ourselves off from everything and, you know, only watch EWTN and only read, you know, uh, particular blogs or whatever. Not that yeah. that's not that that's a bad thing if you do those things, but if you're going to be in the mode of evangelization, there's there's almost no chance that that method is going to work. You have to be able to connect to where people really are. Um, and the way that that's that's a difficult thing to do because it requires discernment and prudence on your part as to what 
how much do you expose yourself to? What things do you have to say? For me, that's not going to be that. I can't do that. Somebody else might have to be called to mm-hmm. to touch that part of the culture and, and reach to them. Um, so it's a, it's a universal call that we're all in, in in some way supposed to be missionary disciples, evangelizing it th- it, the culture as, as well as we can. But it's also a, a particular call into exactly how that's going to play out. And so John Paul II knew the things he knew about, mm-hmm. um, and others. I mean, so if you, for instance, you, Stacy, you you know about the contemporary currents in science, and you can reach people through that way in a way that I have no shot at. You know, um, there's something really um, mystical about that. Yeah, it really is. And we find our own calling, right? We're all called to holiness. We're all called to mission. Um, but that's going to take a different shape. It's going to be incarnated in our own lives. It's going to look like us. And, uh, you know, God will use our uh, strengths, the gifts that he's given us, but also our weaknesses uh, and limitations to to reach out with the gospel. He wants to reach out so much more than we do, right? uh, but he'll make good use of us if we allow him the uh, the latitude to do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it, it's it's really a, a pleasure to to be holding this book and to know that it's there for people to uh, purchase and put in their homes and read and share with their friends and their children. Um, thank you for the work you did editing it, Jamie. Um, oh, absolutely. And going it's around a, it's and talking. I, I just want to, but before we close out here, I do want people to know who you are. Um, and I know this is a great service for you and you've done it, but, but you are an editor um, mm-hmm. by trade. You are a senior editor at Ave Maria Press. Um, yeah. and, and you're a convert, a wife and a mother with eight grown children. I'm, I'm a convert what? wife and a mother with seven not quite grown children. Um, that's, so that's we share that. <laughs> and Luke has five children. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and you write a, a biweekly column in the pilot and you share the mm-hmm. Catholic faith in word and song. And you live, yeah. we just learned, in New Orleans, which is not too far from the Diocese of Tyler. Jamie has yeah, a website let me see if i get this right loaves and fishes ministry.net yes that's right okay will you follow her yeah, on, I'm, I'm on facebook and twitter and all those twitter. things too but you know um at always YouTube. interested to hear what people need and what they've yes. experienced of the lord in their lives and and uh you know let's share that and build community that is life-giving in a civilization of love yes and, you know, the one-liner to remember everyone, because we always kind of end our show with a one-liner. St. John Paul II talked about truth and love, which is very Trinitarian, very humanitarian. And if you want to get started in his writings, we found these seeds that you can start to grow um, and learn more about those in your own lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. 